Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Here we are, September again. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. It always crosses my mind. Wow, that's a big day. I always think about how beautiful it was that day. And then I have some friends who actually lost their lives because they worked in the World Trade Center. It was very hard to believe. I will never forget that day. It's still like it happened yesterday. Never forget how the world is different today. It's a day I'll always remember. I will never forget 9-11. Money FM 89.3. As long as I live. Remembers. And we're remembering this morning on Saturday mornings with Glenn Van Zutphen and Neil Humphreys, the September 11th attacks, 2001, 2,977 people were killed on that day, including, uh, and more than 6,000 others were injured. Since then, thousands more have died as a result mm. of toxic dust and cancer-causing uh, agents, they believe. Uh, and so, very sad. As mentioned earlier, not only were Americans killed, but some uh, 90 countries uh, lost residents who were in New York City and Washington, D.C. And except uh, we have to also mention uh, 344 firefighters, 71 law enforcement officers all died at the World Trade Center in New York City. So many sacrificed uh, that day. We are here to talk about that right now. Let's bring on our first guest, which is uh, Melinda Murphy. Melinda is a multi-Emmy award-winning reporter. That morning, she was the WB Morning News helicopter reporter right over Ground Zero. Melinda, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Neil. Melinda, take us back to that uh, and just give us a brief overview of what you were doing that morning. Sure. That morning, we flew our regular newscast. We were up early. The towers were spectacular that morning, more so than any other day. They were bathed in this crimson sunrise sunlight. They were just spectacular. And in the helicopter with me was my pilot, Ray Rivera, and my photographer, Chet Wilson. And then we had a guest in our helicopter, a woman named Brenda Bannon, who was training to become a uh, helicopter photographer. So when we landed that morning um, after the show, Brenda was going to be covering breaking news for the first time ever because Chet was going to go with me. I was going to do a public appearance in Times Square. And so we were going to leave Brenda for the first time with a helicopter. And so Chet got out of the helicopter and I promise you, he said this, it's not like the World Trade Center is going to fall down or anything. Oh my gosh. And so then we, I know, the irony. Um, mm. So then Chet and I went back to the station, which was on the other side of Manhattan. And we were in the post-show meeting. We were watching the the monitors and suddenly you see these videos of, of it was coming from the Empire State Building. They have cameras there that were pointed down south and we could see that the tower was on fire and we weren't really sure what happened, but we ran out the door and we got in a taxi and we took off across town to meet the helicopter. And on the way I called my husband who worked a block south and I told him I thought it was gonna be a long day. And he said, I said, they say it was a plane that hit. And he said it was a big plane because I felt it. It was a big plane. And he was on the phone with Kenner Fitzgerald, who lost everybody in their office. So Tom heard all that. So um, I get to the helicopter just as the second plane went in. And as we took off over the Hudson River, there was a giant fireball coming out of the side of the second tower. It was it was um, it's just hard to describe. It was pretty awful. And so we were we were up pretty much right away, and we were allowed to stay up. So everybody else in the country, all of the commercial aircraft was grounded at 942. But we flew until uh, until 4:45 that afternoon. Yeah, I know this. And is... we landed twice for fuel. 
Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Melinda. I, I know this is uh, it's 20 years later, still just as, as raw as it probably was then. Um, as you were up there and, and looking at the scene, you were feeding information back to air traffic control, uh, to the authorities um, as best you can. And I, and I imagine this is probably not going to be easy. Describe what you were seeing above that because there was so much dust and smoke in the air. There, there was a, you know, it was a right. pretty chaotic scene. Well, so, you know, at first we were just telling people, you know, traffic stuff, where to stay away from, what was happening, what we could see. Mm. Uh, we were talking to air traffic control about different planes that were up to help them identify who was there. Um, but when the first tower came down, I mean, it was just, we were over the Lincoln Tunnel, which was still fairly close. And our our, um, our camera was very strong. So we could actually zoom into the building. We could see the fire rolling. We could see people standing on the ledge. Um, and then... When the first tower came down, it was kind of behind the second tower. And I remember looking out the window thinking, did that just, did that happen? It just, it just didn't seem that it was possible that it could have possibly fallen down. And, and then my husband who worked a block south had told me he was going to go outside and watch. So then, you know, I didn't, I didn't know if he was alive or dead. It looked to me like from where I sat that 10,000 people had died. It was, it was an awful gross. I mean, because I think even on the ground, it was so chaotic, but from the air, it was very quiet. There was no dust. It was just you know, this like front row seat, this awful tragedy. And so then we were up um, when the second tower came down too. So I would do my news reports mm. and then in between I would cry and then I would do my news reports and then in between I would cry. And then we landed for fuel twice. And the first time we landed, um, I called my father who had Alzheimer's and my father had dementia and he, he was my, he was crystal clear. He was my mm. dad that day. He was mm. amazing. And so then he told me it was all going to be fine. And then I, I kept trying to call my husband, but no phones were working. And then my sister-in-law called me, and she had worked really close to where my husband worked. And she said, sis. And then she started to sob. And I'm sure she was going to tell me that Tom was dead. And then I hear him go, hi, honey. Hmm. And I dropped to the tarmac, and I started to sob because wow. he was alive. Awesome. Um, and I was one of the lucky ones. So, so many people we knew were killed and so many people were lost. And all my friends who were reporters were on the scene. And I was so worried about everybody because I was, I was safe in the air, really, in the end. Yeah. Melinda, you did heroic history-defining work that day. And I know that sometimes the, the media, quite rightly, <laughs> gets a bad press, pun intended, for being overly intrusive. But I watched a yeah. documentary just this week, a BBC documentary, that reminded me that we were pre... Well, we were the early days of the internet. We were pre-smartphones. We did not have a cameraman or woman on every street corner. Air Force One was watching your feed... They had no access to any other sources of information at that time. The world was increasingly watching your feed. Did you feel in that moment or subsequently that what you were doing was not just a news story that day? It was a service that was provide. You were providing a service to the world. Did you realize the significance of what you were doing in that moment? Um, yeah, I think we did. I, I made a conscious choice to never put myself on camera because I knew people were using our video and I, it wasn't about me. The story was about what people were seeing. And when we, when all the other helicopter copters were grounded at 942, we knew that we were the only source from above and, and really our images because so many people lost their feeds from ground zero when the towers came down. So we were one of the only images that people could see for a long time. And, um, we, we couldn't see the station anymore when the tower came down that, the um, the transponder came down as well, so we couldn't see what the station was broadcasting. So we just had to do it all remotely. And I had a, a very good 
producer on the ground, Daniela, who was on the phone, you know, phone uh, on the radio with me the whole time, giving me updates. And then, you know, I was very lucky because my pilot had been in the army. My photographer, Chet, had been a firefighter. And so the three of us together knew a lot of information about what we were seeing. And we witnessed what was really amazing is there was this huge nautical evacuation. So it was larger than the one at Dunkirk. There are all these ferry boats, all these other people came and they went to the southern part of Manhattan and took people away. So we witnessed all of that. The ferry boats were able to pump water, so that, or the tugboats rather were pumping water to the to the trucks. So we, we were able to see all that. It was it was um it was quite historic, as you said. Oh, thank you, Melinda. Melinda, please stay with us. We want to touch back with you in just a few minutes. But now let's bring on Captain Jerry Gelbard from Fire Department, New York EMS, retired now. Uh, he was at the World Trade Center Incident Command Center. In fact, he was later uh, involved in integrating the local system with the uh, federal emergency management resources. Uh, Jerry, you are right in the thick of it, at the ground level at the World Trade Center. Good morning, first of all. Thank you for being with us. Uh, tell us about uh, tell us about that day from your perspective. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for uh, bringing this out 20 years later. Uh, as we well know, uh, a lot is forgotten. A lot is pushed into a uh, file cabinet, and um, people today that were either infants or not born, you know, in 2001, uh, don't know anything about it. We have people on the job now, uh, when you bring up 9-11, they're like, okay, I'll be in. You know, mm -hmm. they, they're desensitized because they don't know. So I think our job as adults moving forward is to really make people aware of what happened that day, how the world changed, how we changed as people, and what, you know, what we need to be as people moving forward. Um, you know, my, my piece of the operation was quite small. Um, I consider myself one of the lucky ones um, because uh, I responded from a remote area of the city from my ambulance station. And unlike any event uh, that we've responded to, everything was pretty much in your region, in your sector, uh, and as you said before, this was all hands on deck. It's mm -hmm. unprecedented. Um, We're all hands on deck, and you log on to your radio and your computer, and you're in a car, and you're going. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, all the protocols, all the procedures about, um, you know, who's going first, who's going second, it's, it, it was really uh, amplified. So... Uh, my fortunate story, as uh, my colleague in the air earlier said, you know, she was up in the air. Um, my saving grace was I was responding in down the east side of Manhattan. Uh, and had I continued in um, to the battery area, I would have been right at the foot of the trade center. Uh, I guess as luck would have it, um, the command and control people came on the radio asked where I was, I told them. They said, we have enough officers on the east side. Uh, we need to flank the, the west side. Mm -hmm. So I proceeded to change my course and started going cross town. With that, the North Tower is coming down. Mm -hmm. So it was just sheer maybe five, ten minutes uh, that put me in a different uh, domain, as I call it. Uh, 
uh, and I got to watch uh, that evolve, and it's surreal. You know, uh, you know, we talk about you know structures that were built yesterday, and you know, whoever thought. So, once I landed at the local command post, um, basically everything was in a cloud of dust. People were moving in different directions. Um, people were on the radio. People were not on the radio. Um, our claim to claim to survival, I guess, for that day um, was that the EMS response, which I can only speak to, I can't talk to the fire response, was that we were trained in the Federal Incident Command System since the 80s. Um, so our personnel were able to just operate autonomously when the buildings were uh, in peril and subsequently collapsed. They were able to set up their own treatment stations, their own uh, transport stations, and make movement. So um, it was that type of training that actually saved more lives and actually saved many of our own uh, because we operate differently than a fire or a police law enforcement mm. component where we stage and we don't, you know, go into the middle or the core. So that, you know, was very heroically done. Um, you know, everyone talks about everything we lost, uh, 343 people, mm. uh, members of the fire department we lost that day, um, and over 257 of the survivors mm. of the FDMY have succumbed to 9-11 uh, related illnesses. Right, yeah. Um, so, you know, pretty soon we're going to surpass what we lost that day. Um, well, Jerry, the, if I could just jump in there, Jerry, I, I saw this week, actually, Steve Buscemi, the former firefighter and actor who, you know, is a huge proponent of the firefighters and the first responders that day. He's just released a new documentary called Dust, and I recommend anybody go and watch it. And it, it has, I believe, surpassed the numbers of people who died on the day. Dust-related illnesses and cancers have now surpassed the original death toll on the day itself. So what would you say to that, Jerry, this idea, you said it at the beginning, that people may not necessarily have forgotten, but the issue to protect and look after the first responders who went into a burning building that people were running away from, those that survived, what needs to be done for them? Uh, we, and I'll, cons I'll include myself there, we, we need support. Um, obviously, uh, I just read uh, President Biden uh, and Congress are about to work on an expansion of the 9-11 uh, uh, funding for the World Trade Center Medical uh, to actually make sure that we have enough funding in there to take care of us uh, as we continue to be sick and the Victims' Compensation Fund for those of us that are ill or succumb. So, you know, that that's the, the medical and the financial side. But... Uh, there's a big mental health component here. Um, there's a lot of us that either speak or only speak half-truths about what's going on. Um, I talk about the, uh, the person behind the smile. Uh, it's unfortunate. Um, there's a lot of dark humor in public safety. Uh, it's used 
to as a coping mechanism yeah. to help us get through the day, get through the call. And, um, you know, we, we really need to be looked after and, and not just, you know, chalked up to, you know, they know how to deal with it. They know how to mm. work with it and they know and they'll get past it. But you know what? I, I've said that many times. I'm in the emergency medical service business for over 40 years and I did 27 with the fire department. And, you know, each call you can get past uh, something of this magnitude was surreal and I'll just share something really quick. Um, after we realized what was going on at the core, I was asked to help establish a ambulance staging area and assist with setting up a remote hospital over at the Chelsea Piers. Uh, and as we know, nothing came there. Uh, that was a very wake up moment um, because you, you saw what, you knew what was in there and nothing was coming your way. Yeah. Uh, and I operated at a remote uh, command center for the ambulances coming in from all over the region. And I worked through the night and here we are, it's daybreak on September 12th. And I just happened to walk out of the command center that we set up as a hodgepodge and the sun's rising, the sun's coming up and I'm looking south from Chelsea Piers and all I see is smoke and sun. Mm -hmm. And you can never see that southern portion of New York City because the Trade Center, two Twin Towers, always blocked that area. Mm -hmm. Very. Uh, For the first time in 30 years, it wasn't blocked, huh? Or so. It was a very yeah. strange, um, very heart-wrenching moment. Uh, because at the same time, I was getting phone calls from fire headquarters um, on a accountability of our members, uh, and they were giving me names of people they could not make physical contact with because mm -hmm. we had to account for everyone. And they were reading off names, and unfortunately, there were the two FDNY paramedic names that I did not see, no one could account for, and unfortunately, mm -hmm. yeah. they succumbed at various parts. So. Yeah. Uh, looking up and seeing that picture uh, put things in perspective, and I realized things that I knew it to be are no longer, and I'm never going to see that the same way. So here we are 20 years later. Uh, you know, at that time, uh, I was going to be 40 years old. Um, you know, I went out after it, and I bought myself some, you know, 40th uh, birthday on a live presence. Uh, and here I am 20 years later and thankful, you know, that I can talk about it and, yeah. you know, sometimes joke about it. But uh, it's something that we need to keep near and dear and somehow uh, keep it out there. I mean, we were the forefront of, you know, doing what we did. The federal government came in uh, and helped manage the entire incident because FEMA had experience with the incident management teams for the wildfires. Yep. New York City really never had anything on that large scale. So they came in to develop that for the World Trade Center, uh, you know, recovery response. Um, EMS, my component, we were always trained in incident command. So we were able to integrate very easily. And then I was on a task force uh, for the next month 
um, hmm. to actually provide medical support to the transition from response to recovery. Awesome. Hey, yeah, Jerry, uh, Jerry, will you stay yeah. with us? We want to come back and touch on some of these in a minute. Um, if, if you don't mind, just stick with us here. Uh, we, we do want to uh, bring in some of the other guests first. And if you're just joining us, uh, this is Money FM 89.3. Of course, Saturday mornings, uh, we are in the midst of our September 11th, 20th anniversary special. Glenn Van Zutphen and Neil Humphreys with you all the way up through noon. Uh, already on with us, Melinda Murphy, Emmy Award-winning helicopter reporter that morning, Captain Jerry Gelbard, FDNY EMS, uh, just spoke with him. And now let's bring on Major General Tim Green, a U.S. Air Force retired, now the strategic advisor for national security initiatives at Texas A&M. Uh, and, and General uh, Green, you were at the Pentagon that day. Uh, tell us what happened and, and where you were uh, when, when the plane hit that building. Sure. Good morning, Glenn and Neil. Thanks for having me. Great to um, have you with us. And thanks for remembering, you know, a lot like what was said. So so this morning or that morning, uh, we were actually in a meeting where General Jumpert was his first day as the chief of staff of the Air Force was laying out his vision for the next four years, what we were going to do. Uh, when the first plane uh, hit the tower, uh, the first tower, you know, someone came in the room and, and kind of told us what was going on. And so we eventually got a video feed up just in time to see the second plane, uh, United Airlines Flight 175 fly in to the second tower at, at about 9.03. And so we, we saw that live. Uh, so, you know, the meeting immediately changed uh, from, hey, what's the next four years to be, going to be like to we, we're going to go to war. We're going to we're going to have conflict. Um, and so being in the room with those senior Air Force leaders, uh, because I was I was a junior guy, you know, the note taker, if you will. Um, they immediately began thinking about, um, okay, how, what's the long haul going to be? So they created a long haul task force about what we're going to do over the next six months, nine months, and then and then have some people also looking at the short term. What do we do today and tomorrow in support of the combatant commanders who had the, the principal authority? So that's where we were. The mm-hmm. meeting broke up pretty quickly, and we all went back to our offices to begin work. Uh, the chief went down to see the secretary of the Air Force and talk about that. Uh, so that was the immediate effect of of those impacts. Uh, and then, of course, American Airlines Flight um, 77 flew into the Pentagon at 937. And so I was in my office. I didn't feel it. Um, the alarms went off. People started evacuating the building. Uh, we didn't know if it was a bomb, a plane. Initially, you know, what happened? Uh, we quickly We quickly learned. We went down to the Air Force Operations Center, which we confirmed was was safe. We could go there uh, with the chief because the Air Force is going to operate. So while the rest of the Pentagon was evacuating, there were a few operations centers that were still up. The Air Force was one of those. And that's where we went to uh, proceed to begin, you know, all those other activities that we needed to do to support the Air Force uh, right. on that day and in the future. Major General Green, what strikes me during this period that people often forget is this happened very, very quickly and lots of life-changing, era-defining decisions were being taken in real time every minute. For example, uh, Flight 93 was still in the air and around this period the decision was taken, I believe, by the Vice President to potentially shoot the plane out of the air if necessary. It was supposedly bound for the White House. People forget this. Um, Subsequently, as we know, heroically, with the passengers on board, 
the plane went down. Simultaneously, you've got the president on Air Force One asking his security experts who could have done this. Nation states like Iran and Iraq were mentioned, but then they said it was unlikely. And then Al-Qaeda was mentioned for the first time. All of these decisions, all of these questions are happening in real time. If you can, try and put us in the room. What Were these the kinds of questions and issues that you were discussing in that moment? Uh, absolutely. So when the second tower was hit, uh, the Air Force chief of intelligence was asked, who might this be? What, what do you think? Uh, and his immediate response was Osama bin Laden because he had declared war against the United States. He was taking actions, although they had no idea. He just said, I have no idea, but that is my best guess today. It's going to take us, you know, weeks to figure this out. But but that's what I, if you're asking me my personal opinion, that's what I think. So it was very striking that that there were people who certainly knew and understood the most likely threat that turned out to be true, but but they didn't they didn't base all the actions on that. Right, you've got to go through the details to see is my assumption correct, and so. Um, you know, the intelligence people began working on that and, and the Air Force began assembling, you know, what it did, needed to do to respond. We, we flew a, a portable hospital to the East Coast that day. We uh, flew ventilators to the East Coast that day to be ready because, to your point, the real time, you know, it was like every 15 or 20 minutes mm-hmm. something else was happening. The first plane, the second plane, uh, the Pentagon hit, the tower falls. Uh, the Shanksville crash, the next tower falls. Um, And so the uncertainty of how many people got out of the buildings, you know, like Melinda said, a lot of us thought, you know, 10,000 people, we forget because of the frequency that there was an hour, an hour and a half for people to get out of the building. Hmm. Uh, And so things um, as bad as they were, they could have been worse, but nobody knew. And everybody felt this sense of attack. Um, Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I saw that day. Do you need to take a break, Glenn? No, no. Go ahead. Just a yeah. Just give us that follow up comment, and then we'll. And then okay. We'll, yeah. yeah so, so we eventually had to leave the Air Force Operations Center due to the smoke, hmm. uh, and so when we evacuated, uh, we flew to an alternate location, um, and and again, real time, there were several things that are etched in my memory. Kind of like Melinda said, you don't forget. Um, the first was the gas in the Pentagon. I mean, a beautiful. Beautiful day. Then you see this gash in the Pentagon. The tower, the the E-ring had already collapsed, the the fires. Then you see the stillness at the um, Reagan National Airport. Normally there's five to ten aircraft in the pattern. There's things moving on the ground. Nothing was moving. All the planes were parked all over the place. Mm. No, No ground vehicles moving. And then as we flew over the Potomac, you look at the 14th Street Bridge, and instead of cars, I saw people trying to get out of D.C. on foot. Yeah. They were, they were literally trying to escape because they were afraid of what they didn't know. They knew we were under attack. They knew other planes were in the air, and they couldn't get out of town any other way. And so you're looking at them. You're looking at the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, the Capitol, the White House. It was an image that just didn't commute, compute, and there were no photographers in their air to record it. Um, mm. So that, that involved some personal decisions. I told myself I was going to serve and combat this um, so that people didn't have to deal with this. I, I felt a great sense of um, responsibility uh, more than, you know, going forward, certainly. Um, and so it changed the course of my life as well, because I did serve until I retired, you know, when it was, was time to go. But that was another 17, 
17, 18 years. Wow. Over. Wow. Thank you, uh, Tim. That, that's wonderful. Please, please do stay with us. And, and like so many uh, hundreds of thousands of other Americans decided at that moment they were going to do something to try to help and to serve in some way. Uh, so thanks for that. Uh, let's go ahead and bring on our last two guests. Uh, Steve Oaken, of course, our regular contributor on our International News Review. At that time, the former uh, Deputy General Counsel and Aviation Advisor in the U.S. Department of Transportation, Washington, D.C. And Chris Balderston, the former Deputy Chief of Staff, for U.S. then U.S. Senator Hillary Clinton, and now the National Political Director at Change Research. Chris, um, uh, good morning first uh, to both of you. Chris, let me start with you. Uh, you were also the legislative director at that time for Hillary Clinton, the, the U.S. Senator from New York. Um, at, at that moment, was the senator, were you already starting to think, okay, look, how can we get some federal funding and help uh, lower Manhattan uh, recover from this or at least get through it? Yeah, I, on the way in from uh, my home in Alexandria, I passed the Pentagon and heard about the first flight. We got to the Capitol where we worked in the Russell Building. Um, Senator Clinton had not re- yet arrived yet. We heard about the first crash. And uh, uh, luckily, she has Secret Service protection. So uh, after the second one hit, the Secret Service informed, our, informed me and told me to evacuate our staff we left the Russell building and, and I met Hillary on the way in. Secret Service put her in the car and we headed to a staff member's uh, uh, townhouse on Capitol Hill where we had a, a kind of a, our own little uh, room where we could strategize. The, these were our constituents that had been hit in New York City. We couldn't get her or Senator Schumer up to now the majority leader uh, up to the city. So mm. um, we really were spending our time like everyone else looking at. Uh, what was happening here? I I would note I I when Jerry was talking about the medical uh, the EMS yeah um, I I always remember being um, in this townhouse with Secretary Clinton and, and very presciently said, you know I these workers need masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, she immediately recognized that that we were not prepared and uh, people were going to have ill health for a number of years and subsequently she and Schumer came out with, uh, you know, the medical care assistance that would later happen. And also within days started the the whole uh, rebuilding lower Manhattan. Uh, we would later go to the to President uh, Bush for a $20 billion program for immediate funding. So you, you immediately kicked in. But we had two very uh, uh, antsy New York senators who wanted to get back. But everything was closed. The sure. tunnels planes, the trains, everything. Couldn't get there if you wanted to. Couldn't get there if you wanted to. Well, that's a good point to bring in Steve here. Watching the documentaries this week, Steve, uh, President Bush was in the air having that same discussion with his officials. I want to land. I want to be seen. I want to go back to the White House. And his security personnel were telling him that's not safe at the moment. As someone who was in Capitol Hill that day, what are your thoughts looking back on the key political figures on the day and in subsequent days, whether it's President Bush, Senator Clinton of New York, or even Mayor Giuliani. Looking back, what are your thoughts on the way the key political figures responded? Well, you know, when that first plane hit, and as you said, I was in my office on Capitol Hill, you know, my thought was, well, is this a terror attack or is this some type of tragic accident? You know, in my time at DOT, I'd worked on aviation safety and security. Um, It worked on every major aviation disaster. And I remember after TWA 800 uh, in 1996, everybody said, oh, this was a missile 
that took out the aircraft. And it wasn't. Obviously, it was it was a mechanical design failure um, that ended up causing the plane to explode over Long Island Sound. And so that was my thought. Which way is this going to go? We were always worried, you know, as the U.S. government about a terror attack on airlines. There was something in, in 1995 called the, the Bojinka plot where where they were uh, ISIS uh, was going to blow up 11 aircraft headed from Asia to the United States. Um, so we were always worried about bombs on aircraft. How do you keep the bombs off the aircraft? Then the second plane hits the tower. And then obviously, you know, it's not an accident. Yeah. Then the third plane hits the Pentagon about half an hour later. And then those of us on certainly on Capitol Hill or at the White House are going, are we next? Sure. Um, and yeah. if that plane is going to attack the Capitol from the north to the south, um, it's going to, you know, I'm likely going to die. People like Chris are likely going to die. Um, what's going to happen? So so the whole country, Neil, came together mm. uh, after 9-11. It's, it was really remarkable to see, as you mentioned, you know, Senator Clinton, Senator Schumer, two Democrats, Rudy Giuliani, a Republican, George Bush, a Republican. Partisanship went out. We all came together. How do we rebuild um, New York? How do we take care of the first responders? How do we address the new threats we have in aviation security? Everything was bipartisan, and it, it's something that you look back on with, with, you know, making you proud as an American, and it also makes you wistful when you see what's happening today with our politics. Steve, you had also done a lot of work um, uh, on the legislative side looking at air traffic safety. Uh, you had done things at the DOT and the Clinton administration. Uh, just give us a couple of data points on, on that process and, and, I know, uh, and what that led to. Well, I'll give you one, and then I'm going to turn over to Chris. You know, he yeah. and I worked at the in the administration together, and then he saw all this through on the Hill after I had left government. Right. But one of the things we were always worried about at, at, at DOT was was the screeners at, at airports. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were the lowest paid employees at the airports. They were making minimum wage. And this is pre TSA. We you know, all the stuff course, we go pre-9/11. through now. Yeah, yeah. We knew this was a problem. You literally, you would get a job as a screener at an airport, hoping you would then get a job at the McDonald's in the airport because it paid more. And this was an mm. entry position into employment at an airport. So we all knew this was going to change, but it was too expensive. No one would ever do anything about it. 9-11 forced that change. It forced the, the you know, the creation of, of TSA. It, it forced federal employees to be airport screeners. We are so much safer now, not 100%, we are so much safer now because of that. That's one little change. And Chris can talk about a whole lot more that happened legislatively. Yeah. Chris, to you on that on that front. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, our first concern was getting New York back back in shape and uh, and and lower Manhattan and the workers uh, and and move very quickly. And as Stephen says, I, I'm wistful at the times when we were bipartisan, uh, you know, very symbolically that afternoon as we as we all gathered at the at the Capitol Police Department, uh, Republicans, and Democrats together strategizing and deciding symbolically that we were going to go to the front of the Capitol and sing God bless America together. It, it sounds corny now, but it was a very, very emotional moment where you had House, Senate, Republican, Democrat and, and citizens from the neighborhood coming over and singing in front of the Capitol. It's it's um, something uh, 
very worrisome when you start comparing it to recent events at the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be the key of that day, doesn't it? The, the yeah. lack of bipartisanship went out of the window. And it brings me back to, I wanted to bring back Melinda and the other guys, if we could, to maybe talk about the legacy of 9-11. What was the legacy of 9-11 for New York, and maybe for the US and the world specifically, but maybe Melinda first, you were there on the ground. What do you think the legacy of 9-11 was for New York City? You know, it's interesting you bring this up, Neil, because uh, I have children. My children are 11 and 13, and they knew that we were there, my husband and I were there, but they didn't really know the details because I kind of hid it from them. And so I just really talked to them for the first time. I showed them a piece I did um, for the anniversary, which is uh, basically my day that day, and we talked to them. And it's like Jerry said, you know, children don't really know this stuff. They don't really understand. It's like a piece of history from a long time ago, whereas it's part of our lives. And one of the things that I made sure I talked to my children about was all the helpers, how so many people, everybody was a New Yorker that day. Everybody, you know, was American that day. Everybody felt for us and came together. And it was amazing to see. I went to Ground Zero um, a week later, or not even a week later, that weekend. And it was um, spectacular to see all these people pulling together to try to make things better. And then I want to say on how on Thanksgiving, we flew over Ground Zero again, and it was still burning, it was still smoldering. Mm. Um, and I think the legacy of this is that, you know, people now, I think we all need to remember it. And that's the big thing is that we need to remember what happened. We need to teach our children and make sure that we never forget. And I know we always say never forget, but I think I think there's something really to that. I mean, it's, it's something... You know, when I'm here, I've lived in Singapore for nine years. This is my home of choice. I love it here. But on on 9-11, I always really miss being in New York. Because for me, you know, this is a day that makes me remember how much I loved I love New York and I love the people there and I love um, how we all came together in a nonpartisan. It wasn't even about politics. It was about helping each other mm-hmm. and all pitching it. And to me, if you're going to say... What do you want to remember? What I want to remember is that people, there was a lot of good that day too. While we think of these awful people and they did these awful things in the end, there was so much good that came out of that day. Thank you, Melinda, for that. Really appreciate that. Uh, Captain uh, Jerry Gelbard, uh, for FDNY EMS, uh, you talked about preparing for the future and coordinating services. What's the, briefly, what's the legacy for you? Well, uh, before I retired, ironically, um, I went into a unit called the Center for Terrorism and Disaster Preparedness, which was, as many things were, born after 9-11. So I worked on uh, disaster exercise emergency planning for the department. And um, that uh, has actually, in many ways, uh, pushed us into arenas that we never touched on before. Um, we, We did things about... Um, the attacks on Mumbai and how it could affect us here, uh, different other scenarios. So that kind of put an awareness on not when or what. It's a matter of, you know, are we prepared going forward? And I think we're better prepared uh, from a response and, uh, you know, standpoint. Um But as everyone has spoken about it, Mm. uh, the legacy is, yes, a lot of bad things happened that day. We really had no control over it. Um, Mm. What I'd like to take away is a lot of great things happened that day. Um, Everyone, every one of us that were on the response has a story. 
Um, however small, it, it, it's what signified the the event and the day for us. And um, we, you know, my stepdaughter is 24 now. She was 40 years old at the time. Um, I wasn't even married to her mom at the time. And, um, you know, what did she know at four years old? You know, right. and uh, a great colleague of mine, um, many of you might know him, Larry Maffo, uh, published uh, an op-ed in the uh, Gothamist uh, again this week. And it had to do with, what do I tell my children? And uh, it was very poignant um, because when they're young, you don't want to say anything. When they're 10 to 12, you say a lot of bad things happen and mommy, daddy, or somebody, you know, in this case responded and helped. And, and as you get older, you try to pick out what to talk about, but at the same time, when you pick those pieces out to discuss, it uncovers all your things that you've been able to put in a file cabinet and let you mm-hmm. move on with your life. That's a great, uh, yeah, great remembrance. Great. Yeah. yeah. If we could just, uh, sorry to interrupt you, if we could just bring in, because we're up against the clock, if we could bring back Major General Tim Green uh, briefly, if he could tell us what he thinks the legacy is from a security standpoint. Um, I think the legacy is when you when you poke the bear, the bear will unify, right? And I got to see people like I mean, we got a I got a photograph of a Korean War veteran saying, "Look, I still fit in my uniform. What can I do?" Uh, and and then as we in the military have responded, part of that legacy is is what we've done since. I, I've had the the great fortune of getting to see all elements of America. Rich, poor, north, south, east, west. People come together from across this nation. Uh, they go through basic training and they work together to provide security for our nation in the military sense. We hope to do that on foreign soil. We don't want to do that on American soil. And then we, we hope to um, provide opportunities for those that may not have them. And mm-hmm. so I think that's the 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 best of our 20th century military tradition has been, has been carried out and we've done those things. Um, the other part of the legacy is, is we feel safe, we get complacent and we lose our imagination about what others might choose to do to us. So there's, there's two elements of the legacy. There's the really good and the really positive. And then there's this feeling is if we've done our job, you feel safe. And, and I want you to feel safe, right? I want you to feel safe and secure, but that very safety and security allows you to become unsafe. Yeah. So Thank that you. this can occur again. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks. We, we do have to leave it there. Uh, Chris Balderson, how about you? What is a, a quick legacy that we've got uh, that we should focus on going forward? You know, uh, the first thing I would say is this is a day where a lot of your old friends come together. I, I, I will always remember, as, a, as the previous guest said, uh, the the families of, of, of a lot of the 9-11 victims came to Washington to really promote change. And that's something we're still friends 20 years later. It's something that will last a long time. I sent to Stephen, as you know, part of my job is a, a, a political director for a polling firm, Change Research. Yeah. And, and I do think that um, we did a poll on this and there are very many generational trends here. Um, I think it's going to be a very long time before young Americans uh, put uh, people on foreign soil again. Yeah, uh, good point. That came out 
very, very clearly in, in the polling that we did in the last week. And Steve, Thanks. we'll yeah, give Steve Chris. the final word. Yep. Two things. One, Bennett's, you know, your Bennett's your super intern. Bennett's first birthday was three days after 9-11. And, you know, we were questioning whether or not to go forward with the birthday party. Uh, and, you know, we were in northwest Washington and we decided, yeah, we have to do this. It's important that we don't let the terrorists win, that we go for and that we we live our lives and that we have a future generation coming that we have to you know, make the world a better place. And so I think that spirit is still there. Yeah, thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. That is a, a, a poignant reminder as well. Hey, we have to thank all of you for coming on today. Major General Tim Green, Melinda Murphy, Captain Jerry Gelbard, Steve Oaken, Chris Balderson, our dream team, our all-stars, uh, remembering September 11th, 20 years later. We really appreciate all of your time. There's lots of comments in our Facebook live chat. If you can all stick around and maybe add to some of those uh, comments or answer some of those questions, we'd appreciate that. But thanks to all of you for coming on today. Thank you so much. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.